Well, again, it is it's good to be back together and back in the book of Ruth together this morning. Now, it's, it's been a few weeks since we took a break for, for Easter since we've been here. So let me just sort of remind us and catch us up where we've come in uh, the book of Ruth here. We started obviously in, in the beginning in Ruth 1 verse 1 being told that, that in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem and Judah went to, to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now remember, uh, Bethlehem was called the house of bread, and so we're being told here right at the beginning that the house of bread had no bread. Uh, earlier in the Bible, we read that, that God had, had promised his people that, that if they follow him, he will provide for them, he will protect them, but if they don't, if they rebel, if they go their own way, then the land won't be fruitful. Now, this was a, a covenantal uh, promise that God had made with his people after bringing them out of Egypt. Now, in, in working uh, through the Bible myself this year, in my uh, kind of devotional times, I've been in Exodus and Leviticus as we're in the beginning of the year. And uh, in the last little bit, I've, I've noticed many times in these books especially that, that the terms of this covenant, the terms of, of this agreement between God and his people are, are being laid out. And one thing that just keeps jumping out at me as I read these chapters and, and books is the repetition of God saying, listen, I brought you out of Egypt. Now this is how I, I want you to live in relationship to me. It's so important for us to, to remember that, that the love of God for his people is, is really unconditional. He said, listen, I made you, I rescued you from slavery, I'm for you, I know what's best for you, and so here's how to live. We don't have to fulfill some kind of checklist to get God's attention to then get his affection. And so what all of this means for us as we come to Ruth chapter 1 is that implicit in these opening words of there's a famine in the land is that the people had walked away from God. There's, there's disobedience, there's, there's rebellion, and there's sin in the land. And so we start to read about this family that's, that's leaving the place where God has called them to go and they, they, they left to go to Moab, another land that served other gods and a place that was one of the, the worst places for a Jewish person to find themselves in that time. And, and we've talked about some of those reasons before. Now we're told that in all the, the family is in Moab for 10 years and during that time, the father Elimelech dies. Uh, the, the two sons marry Moabite women and, and neither couple has any children of their own. And then the, the two sons die as well. And so at the end of that 10-year period, we are left with Naomi, the mother-in-law of Orpah and Ruth. And then after 10 years, the word gets to Naomi that once again there is a harvest in Bethlehem. There's bread again in the house of bread, and so she decides to go back. And out of love, she tries to send Orpah and Ruth back to their Moabite family so they might remarry and have families there. She's saying, listen, there's nothing for you there, so at least stay here with your people and, and maybe you can find a husband and, and rest here. And look what, this, look what she prays over them in Ruth 1 verse 9. She says, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And she kissed them and, and they all lifted up their voices and wept together. Now, Orpah does go back, but Ruth clings to Naomi and, and has something of a conversion experience. She's, she's totally committed to Naomi, her mother-in-law, but not just to Naomi. Look at Ruth 1, 16 and 17. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. 
For where you go, I will go, and where you will lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And may the Lord, she's calling on the name of uh, the, the Lord, the God of Israel here, and may the Lord do so to me and more if anything but death parts me from you. She has just bound herself to Naomi. She's giving up everything she's known. She's giving up her people. She's giving up her land. She's giving up her gods. And she's putting all of her future hopes in Naomi, Naomi's people, Naomi's land, and Naomi's God. So she returns with Naomi. Though The women get back to Bethlehem, and Naomi says when she returns to the people in town, listen, don't call me Naomi anymore. And we know that, that Naomi means pleasant. And she says, instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. And she says, and this is important, I went away full, but I've now returned empty. Now, two really quick things here just on that statement. Pay attention to this theme of, of fullness and emptiness as we read through this book because it's a, it's a big one. And second, and, and my wife Naomi pointed this out too, is as we read through the book of Ruth, how many times do we read anyone actually calling Naomi Mara? None, not once. I think this is a really deliberate move by the narrator, the storyteller here, and it's important for us to recognize that, listen, our perception of the events that we're in the middle of is often clouded by the fact that we're in the middle of it. There's nothing wrong at all with, with Naomi expressing her emotions, and we have chapter after chapter in the Bible of people expressing and venting their real, raw emotions to God, and that's a good thing we're allowed to do that. However, it's often the case that we're in the middle of the struggle we can't fully appreciate everything that's going on. Naomi says, I'm empty, but that's going to change. She says, I I'm no longer pleasant, but instead I'm, I'm just bitter. And we're going to see that change as well. And right away at the start of chapter 2, we start to see that the providence, the, the working of God start to happen. The narrator makes it really clear to us as readers that, that even though the characters in the story may not see it, that, that God is at work. God is providing. God is in control. A simple example, we, we read that, that Ruth happens to wind up in Boaz's field. And we start to see God providing for Ruth and Naomi through Boaz, this worthy man. And so chapter 2 ends with, us, uh, with, with telling us that Ruth continues to work in the fields with Boaz and with his young women who are, who are like, a, like a staff for him. And she worked for him throughout the wheat and barley harvests. And so now we've got maybe eight or nine or ten weeks or so of harvest and, and she continued to live with Naomi. So now as we get into chapter 3, this, this is where we're at. We have Ruth and Naomi housed and fed. Uh, Ruth has been working but still remember their position. They are both still childless widows. Naomi is beyond childbearing age, and, and Ruth is a Moabite still. She, she's an outcast in, in many ways, which makes her prospects of finding a husband in Israel quite slim. Ultimately, even though their immediate physical needs are being met, they've got grain, they've got a home, they are without kids and they are without land. They're without a family, they're without land. So their, their future provision is lacking. And yet they're still both fiercely loyal to one another, which is beautiful. So let's start reading verse 1, Ruth 3, verse 1. 
Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, why should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? A great question. And Ruth could have just simply answered, Yes, you're right. Why aren't you seeking rest for me? It was, in fact, Naomi's responsibility to take care of her as, her da- as the daughter-in-law. But remember, these, these words echo that prayer from chapter 1 that we looked at just a few minutes ago where, where she prayed over Ruth and Orpah that they would find rest in the house of a husband. See, Naomi wants to find a suitable companion, a husband for Ruth, one that, that she can go through life with, one that she can build a family with. And now what, what we're seeing here as well is a vastly different Naomi than the one we saw at the beginning of chapter 2. There, if we go back to chapter 2, Naomi just told Ruth to go. Ruth said, listen, I need to find us some food. I'm going to head out. You, you've, we've explained the gleaning laws. I've got to go find us some food. And, and Naomi just says, okay, go. Not considering the risks. Recognizing that even though Ruth is going, she's young, she's foreign, she's a widow. There was danger in what Ruth was saying. And she just says, listen, just go. But now it's as though a Naomi is getting her life back, getting her faith back. She's, she's coming out of the kind of the depression that she was in a, a few weeks before. And she's seeing how the Lord is providing for them. And she, she's kind of springing into action. I appreciate how one writer notes here that, that a belief in God's sovereignty, that's that, that God is in control, it doesn't lead to fatalism or passivity. But quite the contrary, it provides hope and confidence to move forward. And that's what we're seeing here with these women. They, they believe that God is in control. But just because God is in control, that doesn't mean we just give up and let life happen to us. But instead, knowing and trusting that God is in control gives us hope and, and courage and boldness to step out in faith, knowing that he's in control. Now, in those days, again, just to, to set up some context for us here, there were a couple different ways that, that widows were to be cared for, and there's at least two that are, that are coming up in our text here. The first is what was called the, the Leverite Law. Now, if, if a husband died, it was the duty of his brother to, to take his wife, to, to marry her, and to have kids and try to provide uh, an heir for that wife, his brother's wife, to continue that brother's family line. Now, lineage was everything in those days, in that culture. And so that son that, that the brother provided the widow would be considered the son of the man who had already died. And so he got the inheritance, he got the property rights, he cared for the older family, cared for his mom, that sort of thing. Now in our story, there is not someone like that for Ruth. Remember, both brothers died back in Moab. So we've got that in the background here. The second idea, the second way that, that widows and people would be cared for is this idea of a redeemer. The Hebrew word is a goel. Now, every family had these. These were, this is kind of where the word relative comes from. It's a variation of this word redeemer. And there were a number, number of different things that the redeemer would do in, in these days. Uh, a couple of their responsibilities. If, if someone was murdered, then it was up to that redeemer to seek justice. If someone uh, had a debt and had sold themselves into slavery, which was some, something people sometimes had to do there, the, the redeemer could pay off that debt and, and free that relative from slavery. Uh, if, a, if a land had been sold for the same reasons, they could pay off the mortgage on a property to get it back for that family, to get it back in the family line. And they could also uh, make a restitution for crimes that were committed. So that's the, some of the, the roles of the Redeemer in those days. 
The idea of the Redeemer goes, goes back to, to God and Abraham actually uh, building their covenant together back in Genesis where God promised, you know, I will make you a people and I will give you a land. And so Israel was God's people and, and he had given them their, their freedom from slavery as we see in Exodus coming out of Egypt and, and he had given them their land. And so God was the first Redeemer but God is also our Redeemer today too. He frees us from the slavery of, of sin and death, and he, he calls us his people, and he promises us a new heaven and a new earth. And so this idea of a redeemer that we're going to start to see uh, coming more and more to the surface in the book of Ruth is, is also a, a theological statement of how God is for his people. Now, Boaz is not one who could fill the, the, the Leverite law, but he is a redeemer, as we're about to see. So let's keep reading, and we'll see at first here that, that Naomi has a, has a reckless plan. Verse 1 and 2 again. Naomi, said to, uh, Naomi, the mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, why should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now what we've got here is that the harvest is pretty much done. It's all been collected. It's all been brought in, and, and the grain is being processed at the threshing floor. This was a spot uh, outside of town, uh, likely up on a hill, where, where the grain would be brought and, and either beaten uh, or trampled by an animal. And then the farmers would, would grab a, a fork, a winnowing fork, and, and scoop it up and throw everything into the air and just let the, the heavier seed fall back down onto the threshing floor. But the breeze from outside of town would, would blow the chaff, blow the other stuff away. This work would be done mostly in the evenings when the, the breeze would have picked up. And so Naomi's on a mission still. She said, why uh, should I not find you rest? She's on a mission to provide this rest and a husband for Ruth. And so maybe after that first meeting that we read about back in, Luke, uh, in Ruth chapter 2, uh, Naomi's thinking, Boaz should make a move here. Here's Ruth. He's single. Why not? But alas, he hasn't made a move yet. So now Naomi starts to take things into her own hands and tells Ruth what she should go and do. Starting at verse 3. So wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But don't make yourself known until the man, to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth replied, I will, all that you say, I will do. Now, Let's be clear about what's going on here. There has been no harvest for 10 years, and now there is an abundant harvest. The threshing floor is going to be party central at this point. People are going to be celebrating. They're working in the evening, so once they finish their work and they, they eat and drink together, it's going to be late into the night when it settles down. Again, it was, it was outside the town. There were no street lights, so it was going to be really dark, uh, lots of these guys probably drank too much in these celebrations. They had nice big paychecks in front of them. And often in light of all that, that would be a place where prostitutes would come and find these workers and uh, make themselves available to the men. So Naomi says to Ruth, wash and anoint yourself. She had probably been working. So get cleaned up and get sweet smelling. Put on your cloak, and some su suggest that this might mean, you know, put on some fine clothes, or it might be similar to saying, put on basically a wedding dress and head down to the party. 
but don't let anyone see you. And once Boaz falls asleep, make sure you know where he is. Track down him. Don't go to anyone else. Once Boaz falls asleep, because the the workers would would sleep there to protect their grain, come out of hiding and and uncover his feet. Now, a bit of a PG-13 warning here. The word for feet may also be translated as lower regions. So I'll let you sort out what that might mean. He says to do this, and then he will tell you what to do. This is Naomi trying to force things for Ruth and Boaz here. This is her acting out of a, a worldly instinct, what the Bible calls the flesh, and, and not trusting in God's timing. She, she's forcing it. We see this in other places too. Uh, maybe an obvious example is Abraham and Sarah. They were promised a child, and, and it wasn't happening, so they said, here, Abraham, here's my, my servant. Uh, let's have a child through her instead. And if we're honest with ourselves, maybe we do this ourselves too. We allow our our human desires, our our flesh, if you will, to go after and get a good thing, but we don't always do it in a way that honors God. But you know what the good news is? Even with reckless behavior, we can still walk in faith. It's beautiful if you flip into the New Testament and you go to Hebrews chapter 11, which is called the, the Hall of Faith, you get some of these names of people who are just champions of the faith but they did some seriously reckless things, taking things in their own hand and not the way God wanted them, but God still used them. They're still in that list. Think Abraham, as we talked about, Moses as well, Samson, David. These are guys that made reckless mistakes, yet God still used them. Now, we don't want to be reckless, but do know this, that faith takes risks. And that's what Ruth does here when she she hears a plan. She does what Naomi says, and she's taking a risk. Verse 6. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, she went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, a couple of things to notice here from these verses as well. First, Boaz had just been woken up in complete darkness after an evening of celebration, with at least his feet uncovered, maybe more. That was the point of uncovering, was that that would probably wake you up. You wake up with cold feet in the night all the time. But instead of just waking up, here he finds a a woman there, which wasn't usually the case, A woman who was well-dressed, washed, anointed, sweet-smelling. And now even in this moment, we can see that that Boaz is, in another way, a, a foreshadowing of Jesus to us, where he was tempted but did not sin. The second thing to notice is is notice that that Ruth actually doesn't do all that Naomi tells her to do. She kind of ad-libs a bit at the end there. She takes things back. She was told to, to go and to wait and to, to uncover his feet and then let him tell you what to do. But instead of letting Boaz speak much, she, she actually tells him what she wants. Spread your wings, for you are a redeemer. Effectively, what she's saying is, listen, will you marry me? Or will you propose to me? Ezekiel 16 verse 8 uses the same language of spread your garment for God making a a marriage covenant effectively with his people. Now again, 
just in case we're not clear, this is a huge risk for Ruth. This is a huge risk for a, a Moabite woman to be taking. She is poor. She is foreign. She is a widow. Think of what we know about Boaz to this point. He's well-known in town. He's well-respected. He's got people that work for him, so he's, he's probably well-off. The, the gap between him and her is seemingly huge. So this is a massive risk Ruth is taking. Why would she do it? Well, remember how we said that Ruth had this conversion experience and, and was committed to follow the God of Israel? Well, she wants to, to honor that God. She wants to, to further and add to the family and the people of God. She also wants to, to honor her late husband. Remember that, that if she has a boy, the, the Leverite laws mean that the family property would continue in that family. And she also would know that the Redeemer would be able to buy back the family land, which is what we're going to see next week in chapter 4. And so ultimately, she wanted to, to honor the Lord. She wanted to be a part of this people. She wanted to have a family and have a land. It was, it was her faith in God that led her to take this risk. Here's, here's the lesson for us. Great faith takes great risks. The more your love for God increases, the more you're willing to, to put on the table and maybe give up for his glory. The more risks you're willing to take for his glory. Let's, let's be sure that the risk-taking is not equal to recklessness. Ruth isn't being reckless here. Maybe the original plan was, but she's kind of taken back control in her God-honoring way. Her goal wasn't to come down to the threshing, fo- threshing floor in the middle of the night for a, for a one-night stand with Boaz, so then he'd be forced to take care of her. But rather, she comes down, and by what she's spoken here, What's on her mind is a God-honoring covenant marriage with Boaz. Look at how he responds in verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. Now you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Boaz is, is starting to realize here that actually he's the answer to the prayer that he prayed over Ruth in chapter 2 in verse 12 when he said, Ruth, may the Lord repay you for what you've done. May the full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have taken refuge. He's like, wait a minute. God's using me to answer that prayer. The, the first kindness he speaks of is that, that Ruth stuck with and helped Naomi. But the second kindness he's talking about in verse 10 here is that, that she's choosing him. This is Boaz kind of having a why me moment. There is an age difference here. We can see that by, by the fact that he, he calls her a daughter. And by he says, why, why wouldn't you go after a younger man? He's, he's blown away by this. And so what we've seen here in about 10 verses is, is Ruth's great faith coupled with a great risk showing Boaz God's great grace. And again, this was a great risk for Ruth. It could have ended for her in utter small-town humiliation, or she could be redeemed and get what she wants. And that's what we have here. We are about to see the story of a Moabite woman getting rewritten and redeemed. Now, maybe you're familiar with the story, but at the end of, of Genesis 19, we read of these, these two daughters who were, who were fleeing and hiding with their dad, Lot. And they were, they were living in a cave, just the three of them. 
And they were starting to feel the same pressure that Naomi was feeling for Ruth, that, that they'll never have husbands, they'll never have sons. And so they make a plan. They take things into their own hands. They get their dad drunk. They come to him in the night, and they sleep with him, and they get pregnant. And the two daughters get sons, and one of those sons is Moab, the father of the Moabites. And that's the reputation the Moabites carry to this day where we're reading now. Now, let me just throw this out there as well. Uh, Naomi's plan and this plan in Genesis, six, or Genesis 19, this is not God's plan. Often the Bible is prescriptive in that it tells us how we should live and what we should do and how we should relate to others. But oftentimes as well, it is just descriptive. It tells us what happens, not saying that you should do this. And so both the daughters of Lot and Naomi's plan here, those are descriptive things. Dads, don't tell your daughters this is how to go get a husband. But think of that story in Genesis 19, where the Moabites came from, the reputation they carry. And now think again of what we've just read of Ruth and Boaz. Look at how similar their stories are. They came in the night in darkness. And yet Boaz and Ruth, they honored God. They did things God's way. The story of this Moabite woman, Ruth, is being rewritten and redeemed. Now listen, this is the beauty of the gospel. God can rewrite your story too. He wants to give you a new beginning. He is for you. He wants to redeem your story, and he wants to turn it. So as Paul writes in Romans 8, 28, that, that all things work together for good. Look at verse 11. Boaz says, And now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do for you all that you ask. For all the fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Remember, at the beginning of chapter 2, we were introduced to Boaz saying, and now there's a man, a relative, a worthy man. Question, where else in the Bible do we read about a worthy woman? If you've got your chat handy, type it in the, the comments there, if you can come up with it. Where else do we read about a worthy woman? Proverbs 31, right? That's the, the big second half of, of Proverbs 31 is, is, is about describing this worthy woman to us. You want to know something that's really fascinating, and maybe it's, I think, it, I think it's fascinating. In, in the Hebrew Bible, so the Jewish Bible, not our Old Testament, but the Hebrew Bible, the book order is organized a little bit differently. And so as you read your Jewish Bible, when you get to the end of Proverbs, the next book is Ruth. So right after the chapter, Proverbs 31, on the worthy woman, you flip the page and you start reading the story of Ruth. He continues, Boaz does in verse 12, and now it's true that I am a redeemer, he says. You're right. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. I remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Now lie down until morning. Boaz responds to Ruth here with love and protection and kindness. He also honors their culture because he knows that there is a closer relative, a closer redeemer. And so look what he has to do. Look what he does as a God-honoring, worthy man. He honors Ruth, honors her reputation. He protects her by saying, listen, stay here through the night, through the darkest part of the night. 
he also honors that other relative, that other closer redeemer. Listen, it would have been really easy probably for him to just say, listen, yes, I will be your redeemer. I'll marry you, commit to marrying you. But if he doesn't honor that closer relative, or if he just sleeps with her that night and and makes her his wife that night, then his reputation takes a hit. The reputation of that other relation, that other redeemer takes a hit. Ruth's reputation is probably further ruined and she would actually no longer be able to marry either that other redeemer or Boaz. And so he lets her go. He releases her. Boaz knows full well in this moment that she may wind up with someone else. He could lose her altogether. But as much as he wants her, he's submitted and committed to God's way of doing things. And so let me ask you, what are you holding on to? What are you not willing to release if God asks it from you? Because any of those things that you're not willing to let go, in a sense, have become godlike for you. And hopefully the only thing you're not willing to let go of is Jesus. Because here's how it goes. We can, we can take a good thing. Marriage is a good thing as we're reading about Boaz and Ruth here. We can take that good thing, we can make it an ultimate thing and start pouring all of our time and talent and efforts and energies into it. And once it's an ultimate thing, it becomes a God thing to us. And in a sense, we become enslaved to that thing. But the problem is, unfortunately, that thing will eventually get crushed under the weight of our expectations. Nothing can hold up under the strain of being a God thing to us. There's lots of good things that maybe we lean into too heavily. Our kids can be good things. That we, we say, listen, I am defined by how well my kids turn out. You parents, we will crush our kids if we put that weight on him, on them. Our, our jobs could be that good thing. Our, our wealth and finances, our relationships, our spouses, so many good things if we aren't willing to release them, if we hang on to them too tight and turn them into God things, we will crush them by our expectations. The only thing that won't collapse under the weight of becoming a God thing is God himself revealed to us in Jesus Christ. So what are you holding on to? We keep reading verse 14. And so Ruth lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, listen, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Again, because there was, there was uh, some connotation that usually the only women that came to the threshing floors were prostitutes. And so he's, he's honoring her character and her purity here. And I think this is why we can reject the notion that, that this night some people are suggesting was, was some sort of a sexual escapade. Worthy people wouldn't do that. There's, there's no indication anywhere else in, the, in this letter that, that, that Ruth or Boaz were just looking to hook up. Verse 15, he says, listen, bring the garment you're wearing. We're told that she, she came in her cloak. She was, probably had something over that would have covered her as she slept too. Bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. And so she held it out and he measured six measures of barley and put it on her and she went into the city. Now, six measures is, is somewhere upwards of about 80 pounds of barley. So we know that Ruth is also a strong woman to be able to carry that back home. Well, as we get into this last section of Ruth, Ruth gets back home to Naomi and recounts what happened through the night. And actually, chapter 2 and 3 are very similar in their outlines here. 
until verse 16, we see when, when Ruth came home to her mother-in-law, the mother-in-law said, Naomi said, how did you fare my daughter? And Ruth told her all that the man had done for her. You can imagine, Ruth is coming in, it's still dark, She's carrying 80 pounds of barley. Naomi was probably an anxious wreck, probably up all night knowing the risks that she had sent her daughter out into. And when Ruth gets home, she says, listen, how did it go? What's going on? Tell me. Verse 17, Ruth says, these six measures of barley he gave to me. And he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Naomi replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out today, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Flip back, if you've got your Bible in front of you, flip back to Ruth 1.21. What what does Naomi say when she returns? She says, I went away full, but what? I've come back empty. And Boaz says, you cannot go back empty-handed. It's actually kind of funny here. It seems like, like Boaz sees through the plan that Naomi and Ruth put together to have Ruth come down to the threshing floor. And so he sends Ruth home and says, listen, tell your mom-in-law, I get it. I, I, I see what she's doing. And so here's what we see in this chapter. We see God is in control. He's been working. He is at work and he will continue to work. We see God's grace in their lives in the midst of the scheming and the brokenness. And what we can take out of this chapter is that God still loves you. God is for you. God welcomes you and wants to provide good things for you. So Boaz sends Ruth home with an abundance of seed, meeting her physical needs, but it's, it's also a foreshadowing to the last verses of the book that we'll get to in a couple weeks. Note as well that, that in the Bible, the number six actually represents incompleteness. Six measures of barley, Six represents incompleteness, whereas seven represents being complete. And so Ruth comes back to Naomi full of grain and with the promise of an an imminent redeemer. Doesn't know who yet, but someone will. Yet she's not yet complete. She's got her barley. She's got the promise of, of a redeemer, yet she doesn't yet have the rest. See, God wants for all of us that seventh day rest. Just like in creation, we're told there were six days of work, but but God wasn't done, not until he rested on the seventh day. Six was still incomplete. And that's an essential part of the creation story, that the Sabbath, the rest, comes on that seventh day, completing everything. See, God wants completeness for us, fullness for us. He wants us to come and be made full by his Holy Spirit. Let me say, if you're joining us online this morning and just checking us out and you're, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, let me first again just say thank you for being here and thanks for sticking with us this far through the message. Listen, God wants you to meet him. God wants you to know that he loves you so much and God wants to pour out his spirit into your life. He wants to, to make you full and to give you rest in him. And that's what we've seen in this chapter, that Naomi's reckless flesh, scheming, was replaced by Ruth's risky faith. And it leads us to this remarkable man, Boaz. Now in the story, both Ruth and Boaz are pictures for us of Jesus. Ruth was obedient to Naomi, willing to go and take a risk to go to Boaz as the threshing floor. And Jesus submitted to his father's will died on a cross that we might be forgiven of our sins by the shedding of his blood. 
and it's through his resurrection that we are brought into a new family. We will enjoy a new heaven and a new earth. Like Ruth, we receive a land, a family, a name through Jesus. Boaz, as well, at the threshing floor, he avoided the shortcuts and submitted to God's way. Jesus, too, didn't take a shortcut, but he gave his life on the cross for us. He lived a life of righteousness and then exchanged his goodness for our rebellion and sinfulness so that we can one day stand before God knowing that we're not condemned but accepted and that we have found our rest in him and welcomed into the family. Jesus wants to bring us rest. That's the Easter story. Matthew 18, 28 to 30, he says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is inviting every one of us into that rest. He's inviting every one of us to step into fullness and completeness. If right now, if the burdens of of all that's going on around us are crushing you, man, come to Jesus. He won't immediately make everything all good and everything perfect, but here's the promise. He is with you. He is for you. Those verses we read where we say, take his yoke upon you, a yoke joined two oxen together so they would share the load, share the work. Jesus is saying, just come and let me share the burden with you. Let me walk with you. Let me be with you and lead you into my Father's rest. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this chapter. Thank you for the many examples set in front of us from Ruth and Boaz. Jesus, thank you that you long to bring us rest. If, if anyone is listening that, 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 that is in that spot that is not yet a believer, not yet following Jesus, but, but wants that rest, I, I would just invite you to, to pray a simple prayer. I can, I can lead us in that and just say, Jesus, I need rest. My burdens are heavy. They're crushing me. I maybe don't understand everything yet, but, but Jesus, I want to know you. I, I'm starting to grapple with and understand that you love me, that, that God, that you are for me and you love me and you, you sent Jesus for you, for me. And so the, the Bible tells us if, if we want that rest of Jesus, we, we believe in the work that Jesus has done. We confess our need for, for him to, to help us to be our savior and he, and he will forgive our sins and we will be invited into the family. We'll be given family and a name and a promise of land, a new heaven and a new earth as we are a part of the kingdom together. So if that's your prayer this morning, I invite you to just pray, Jesus, uh, I need you. Forgive me for the ways I've, I've gone my own way. Come into my life, Holy Spirit. Bring rest, bring completeness. Let me walk with you all the days of my life. Let me pray all these good things in Jesus' name. Amen.